Welcome to our Faith and Philanthropy podcast series, where we're exploring what philanthropy and purpose means from a Muslim perspective. My name is Safiya Dandia, and I am part of the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team at UBS. We speak about faith because in working closely with our clients and their families, we recognize the important role that faith plays for many in shaping values, identifying needs, and helping others. Thanks for tuning in to this episode where Imam Khalid Latif, the university chaplain and executive director of the Islamic Center at NYU, is joining us to explore how one can strengthen their connection to their faith through helping others this Ramadan and beyond. Imam Khalid, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we jump into the discussion, I'd love to ask you, what is your personal favorite part of Ramadan? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. You know, I think at this point in my life, um, one of my favorite parts in Ramadan is just really the communal aspect to it. Going through the pandemic for the last couple of years, it's been pretty difficult to get together with people, to say the least. And for the first time in a long time, we're going to be able to now have people in person, breaking fast together, praying together, also working towards our own individual improvement, but in a supportive atmosphere. So essentially self-improvement, but still together uh, and really trying to engage in acts of volunteerism, uh, humanitarian work, charity together. Uh, but it's a, it's a time that I think that communal aspect is something that's just really, really remarkable to experience. Absolutely. And, and coming out of the pandemic, I, I can only imagine how, how excited the community members really are to be able to experience Ramadan in this way again. And in the spirit of trying to make the most of Ramadan, could you start off by just explaining the significance of the month, um, why the last 10 nights in particular are emphasized to us? and this idea of multiplied rewards for your good actions that you take for the sake of God. Yeah, so Ramadan is the ninth month on the Islamic calendar, which is a lunar calendar. And within it, there's a ritual that Muslims undertake that uh, many people are probably familiar with. They have friends who are Muslim or family members where if you have the physical capacity, you're healthy enough uh, to fast during daylight hours, Uh, you engage in a fast that includes abstaining from any food, any drink. Uh, If you smoke, you can't smoke. Um, No sexual activity, and that's from true dawn until dusk. Uh, The month itself also has a lot more that goes into it. Uh, the Qur'an, it mentions the month of Ramadan in relation to the Qur'an itself. And it's said to be the month in which the Qur'an was revealed, sent down to mankind. Uh, the way that that attaches itself to the last ten nights of Ramadan is that uh, many people look for a particular night that's called Laylatul Qadr, uh, the night to power, the night of destiny, um, which is the night that the Qur'an was first said to be revealed uh, and a night in which uh, one is told worship on that night is the equivalent of 
uh, a thousand months of worship. Um, but fundamentally, what a lot of these actions are attached to are just inward development. Um, the verse that speaks about fasting as a mandatory act, uh, it says, كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصِّيَامُ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ That fasting was written for you as it was written for those that came before you so that perhaps you might attain consciousness, uh, this thing called taqwa. And it's interesting because this verse gives us two broader points. One, uh, there's a connection now to communities that precede the Muslim community. That is not saying fasting is something that is just for you as Muslims, but this was something that was given to other religious communities as well. And we see this in the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, uh, which practices like Lent, for example, and otherwise. Uh, and then it gives an indication now of this inward aspect where it says, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ So that perhaps you might attain this thing of taqwa, consciousness, uh, but a distinct kind of presence of consciousness that's rooted in an ethical imperative and also is acutely aware of the presence of the divine. And so many of us, we run just on default settings day to day. Uh, a lot of what we engage in is just in externals. Uh, and what Ramadan is about is reflection, contemplation, recognizing the importance of the world that exists within you. And that, that in turn creates a means through which you synthesize everything that's taking place in the world around you. And you have that presence that quite often gets diluted uh, just through a simple feeding of the physical. It's not ever been about empty stomachs. It's been about both building a relationship with as well as increasing the fullness of your heart and utilizing the heart as an organ of sensory perception through which you can now synthesize information and make meaning of everything that's around you. The last 10 nights in particular that create that night of Laylatul Qadr that we spoke about before, they're also a night in which one is seeking solitude, which is very different from aloneness or loneliness, because it's about not being away from people, but about being away from distractions. And so the recommended practice is that an individual would <clears throat> move into the mosque for literally 10 days and 10 nights. If you couldn't do it for the full 10 or 10, 10 days or 10 nights, you We'll try to do a portion of it, even if it's one night, a few hours. Um, but you're removing yourself from your day-to-day -day routine and trying to understand better how it is that you make sense of the things that essentially are pulling you in all different directions. And it's limiting consumption now in a different facet. The consumption that's curtailed, that's physical, your food and your drink, is one facet, but now you're starting to control the consumption of just what you're hearing and what you're seeing. And in that solitude, you're able to deepen now in a sense of self-awareness that you're removing the day-to-day -day that's filled with a lot of condescension, a lot of racism, a lot of greed, a lot of selfishness, a lot of people lying and backbiting and gossiping. And the absence of those things now becomes challenged by the presence of just a lot of good words and people speaking things that are uplifting. And the impact it does now transformationally on your inward is rooted through this practice that unfortunately 
many of us don't have, right? And you'd want to think about this if you're listening to this. Where do you go for your own places of stillness and reflection? Where do you go to remove yourself from distractions that at times weigh very heavy on your heart? In those last 10 nights in particular, at the culmination of an entire month, are meant to invigorate one's inward self so that the world might not change as such, but because you now have changed through this practice, you see it differently and can become a catalyst of different change for it. Thank you for explaining that. It's truly remarkable what kind of transformations people are able to go through when going on that inner reflective journey. And at the end of Ramadan, Muslims around the globe celebrate with Eid al-Fitr. And typically, that holiday can be filled with an Eid prayer in the morning, plenty of food throughout the day as it's the first day of not fasting for a month, non-stop celebrations with friends and family and so on. But there's also this significant emphasis on ensuring that while you celebrate and participate in the holiday, if you are blessed enough to do so, that you are also providing for the poor so that they are also able to celebrate the holiday and break the fast of Ramadan with you. Can you expand on this concept of the Gato Fitr, which is separate from the annual obligatory Zagat contributions that Muslims must complete? Yeah, so one of the things that becomes rooted in a lot of ritual and practice in Islam are elements of social equity, but also just awareness of how deeply connected we are to each other. Right? I think a very rugged sense of individualism claims that independence is the epitome of self-actualization, where Islam as a tradition would posit that it's not independence, but interdependence that is the highest level of self-actualization. Not how you are separate from people, but just how deeply connected we are to one another. And so what you have in the holiday at the end of the month of Ramadan, this day of Eid al-Fitr, which is on the next month on the Islamic calendar, is the first day of the month of Shawwal, people celebrate. And what they're celebrating is going through an entire month where you are regaining self-control. You are in a place where you have harnessed now the ability to self-regulate, and you are choosing your choices through your own intellectual capacity. You're making decisions through your heart and not at their expense. And the holiday is meant to celebrate all of that growth and all of that achievement that you have on an inward sense. What it also does through the concept now of this charity that is there in recognition of the holiday as well, is it creates a mechanism for two things. One, the purpose of the Zakat al-Fitr, this charity that's uniquely attached to this holiday, is to serve as uh, compensation for any deficiencies or inadequacies one might have had in the course of their month of Ramadan, right? If there's certain things you didn't do as well or could have improved upon, you know, this helps fill those gaps. But more importantly, it plays the role of ensuring that everyone in the community, the society, is able to now celebrate the holiday and no one is left in a place where they can't celebrate simply because they lack the resources. And there's things that are important to embrace 
in that understanding that in order for you to give to those who are in your locale that you know uh, are in need, you first have to know that they are actually in need. And to make the move to have it be a spiritual act that's not done mindlessly but very purposefully. And so a recognition that the holiday is for everybody, and that includes people who have food to eat at their leisure, and whether there's the sun up or sun down, there's some people who don't have anything to eat at all. People who are still entitled to celebrate as per everyone else's own aspirations. And the Zakat al-Fitr is a mechanism that ensures that uh, across the community, um, everyone has that capacity and has that means. There's not really so much that you find in Islam as a religion, ritually, that is devoid of that idea of social cohesion and the common good, right? Ritual is not meant to be an end, but a means to something. And it's supposed to be something that elevates your inward self to be aware of these kinds of things. And you contrast that to a lot of the way society functions in the prism of modernity, we have a lot of challenges that are rooted fundamentally in issues of race and class. And you see a lot of separation and segmentation that exists on principles of social class, race, ethnicity, and people are just very far away from each other. This, as a practice, brings people together on a holiday from all backgrounds, as they stand also side by side in that Eid prayer that you mentioned, uh, where no one is given distinction based off of their level of affluence or not, but everyone is just standing together shoulder to shoulder. Uh, and the impact that their presence has on the prayer is just rooted in their hearts and not what the amount of wealth is that they have or not. Absolutely. It's such a beautiful concept that it is ingrained in our face that when we are blessed enough to be in the position of celebrating that we ensure that we remember those who are not and that we take action to help those who are not. In addition to the charitable emphasis around Eid al-Fitr, the Eid that happens after Ramadan, there's also a big charitable emphasis around Eid al-Adha, the second holiday that Muslims celebrate in any given year. Can you speak on Eid al-Adha and how the significance is given to helping those in need in a different way? And also why you do think that there are so many different and varying forms and structures around how to be charitable uh, given to us as guidance in our faith? I mean, the ability to give to others uh, in their time of need is something that is uh, a deep indicator of, I think, just inward balance, right? Islam as a religion doesn't own any value like love or honesty or integrity, but like many traditions, it also emphasizes the embrace of these things. And if anything, it goes in a step of making it concrete to the individual that says that the completion of your faith is attached to simply loving others or loving for others what you love for yourself. So we have a genre of religious religious literature um, that's referred to as the hadith, the prophetic tradition. And there's many hadith that 
start off with a construct of um, you will not have a completeness of faith until X, Y, or Z. And one of these narrations says uh, you will not have faith until you love for your brother what you love for yourself. Um, and the word grammatically in the Arabic refers to just all people, right? It's a masculine uh, grammatically phrased sentence, but that's just how Arabic functions as a language. That when it's referring to kind of the plural more broadly, it's talking about um, it utilizes the masculine uh, case or gender, but it doesn't necessarily mean male in that sense. So this one says you love for um, your brother what you love for yourself. Uh, commentators on this tradition, they say that that word brother and by default sister, you know, people, family, uh, is not in reference to your brother in faith, but in reference to your brother in humanity that you just love people because there's a universal embrace of love. And that also denotes that you love for them uh, in a way that um, you want to afford to them the opportunities and privileges that you have for yourself. Uh, and in a world that has a lot of discrepancy, wealth gaps, social inequities, um, one of the hardest things for many of us to do is to give to others, uh, especially when we have so much at our own disposal. Um, and Islam puts a big emphasis on engaging in acts of charity, providing to people who don't have so much, uh, giving them a sense of awareness that they're not forgotten. And that's really a big part of what this comes down to, right? Eid al-Adha, which is our second holiday that you mentioned, um, it's commemorated now in particular where uh, in the Abrahamic narrative, we have a story in the Islam uh, Islamic uh, framework that is similar again to the Judeo-Christian narrative. The prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, is asked to sacrifice his son. Uh, in our tradition, most people would say that this is his son, Ismail, um, and not Isaac, uh, but fundamentally, the narrative is still rooted on now trying to figure out what you do in a moment where God is asking to you and you struggle on being able to carry that out. And uh, when the prophet Abraham explains to his son Ismail what is going on, Ismail says to him that you should just do what God is telling you to do. Right, that you have a reliance in a God that essentially believes in you more than you believe in yourself. You know, God is not just watching you, but watching over you. And so you trust that that God is not going to ask of you to do anything that is of detriment. Um, and so the prophet Abraham moves forward to do this, and Ismail uh, is now replaced by a, a ram, and the ram is sacrificed, slaughtered, uh, and in commemoration of that act of sacrifice, Muslims who have the means to do so will also have uh, either uh, a goat, a lamb, you know, a cow, a camel, something that is slaughtered, uh, but the meat then is distributed to people who are in need. Um, and it's something that I think quite often we don't recognize what that means, 
because uh, it's not that people who are in need are essentially just kind of sitting around um, and everything else is going great, but there's real-life experiences they have that beyond empathy being a means of saying that there's some things that people go through that I will never go through and some things that people see that I will never have to see, you can't really relate to it other than through that prism. I've been in conflict zones and refugee camps and in places impacted by natural disaster. I remember uh, I went to Bangladesh a couple of times after the Rohingya refugees from Myanmar had first fled ethnic cleansing and genocide taking place in Myanmar and crossed the border into Bangladesh. Uh, and this was around the time of Eid al-Adha. And then I went again 10 months later, um, just shortly before Eid al-Adha of the coming year, the next year, and in the 10 months that I had between my two visits, the refugees that initially were half a million that had come were now up to a million. And of the many different things that they had going on, uh, they were for the most part just eating rice as a meal every day, three times a day. And the second visit I was there, there was a woman who had witnessed soldiers uh, kill her husband as well as one of her infant children, um, had assaulted her, uh, chased after her for 20 days until she crossed the border, um, had met somebody who was now an official at the refugee camp that was supposed to give her housing for free, but said to her that she had to pay him 800 taka, the local currency in Bangladesh, and she had nothing to access at that time because she had just fled genocide. Uh, and the locals in that area, who also didn't have so much, when they found out she was in this situation, they pooled their money together and uh, essentially uh, gave to her what it was that she, she needed. And to give you an idea, 800 taka is the equivalent of eight American dollars. Right? It's not that much in our kind of sense of, of what it would be. Now I'm sitting with her. She's gone through real difficulty and witnessed real tragedy and hardship. And one of the things she said to me when I asked her, what is it that you're looking for? What do you need? She said, I wish that on this day of Eid that her two remaining children, her surviving children, she wished that she could perhaps give them something different to eat and that they hadn't tasted any meat for so long. And it would be great if that was a possibility. And now the relief organizations that I was there with, they had said to me, we are going to likely be able to provide them with other types of food soon, but don't tell them that we can just in the event that people decide that they're not going to do it in terms of elsewhere in the world, perform this ritual we're not then going to have anything to be able to give to them. And that's kind of where the connection is, right? You can't always drill things down to egocentricity. What is the incentive in this for me? But on the other end, you don't know who it is whose life you're impacting. That same woman, you know, we prayed together and uh, she asked me for, you know, a specific opportunity that we kind of pray for the healing of her family and her countrymen and other things. But she also said to me with tears in her eyes, please say a, a special prayer 
for every volunteer and every donor and every person who has gone out of their way to help facilitate for us the things that we actually have now that are a thousand times distinct from the violence she was in. And she said, let them know that I will always have them in my prayers because of the love that it is that I have felt from them and that they haven't let me believe that I'm alone in this, that someone notices what I'm going through and I'm not forgotten. That type of poverty can't exist without exploitation existing somewhere in the world. It necessitates there being some type of inequitous practice in order for people to be now compelled to live in this way. And even our fast of Ramadan, it's a voluntary fast, right? It's a voluntary hunger, which is very different from involuntary hunger, involuntary poverty, involuntary engagement of these types of lifestyles. Uh, and so the charities of Eid al-Fitr, of Eid al-Adha, they're meant to not just be a means of benefit to the beneficiary who's directly receiving it, but for the person giving, how you see somebody isn't indicative of who they are, but how you see someone will tell you a lot about yourself. You don't want to be the person who puts qualifications on helping somebody in their time of need, especially if you have the means and capacity to do so. And this becomes part of that training process that you're now softening your own heart and recognizing that you don't really need so much in the way the world tells you. And there's a lot more that you probably have room to give to others to help them in their time of real, actual need. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It really does provide some real perspective to think about our brothers and sisters around the globe and the real impact that your actions are having when you think about who's on the receiving end of something that may seem so minor and small to you, but can be absolutely life-changing for the recipient. And as you mentioned, Imam Khalid, Ramadan is oftentimes a, a time for inner reflection, for reconnecting with your faith, and can almost serve as a spiritual awakening for many Muslims. So the the Last thing I'll ask you is, you know, those who may not practice regularly throughout the year will come together and participate in Ramadan in some capacity, will be a part of the community, will reignite their connection with their faith. What advice do you have on how one can really continue to maintain that connection beyond Ramadan in our day-to-day lives? and how that involvement and desire to help those in need and give back to our communities can be a means of doing that and can be a means of staying engaged and maintaining that connection to our faith. Look, acts of kindness, acts of generosity, they have a certain virality to them. They're contagious. And the benefit of engaging in an act of kindness, volunteerism, charity, is statistically shown to not just bring benefits to the one who's the recipient of the act, but the person who's the doer of the act as well. And in Ramadan, there's going to be a lot of us who are following certain practices. If you build in just moments in a day, every few days, an opportunity to reflect on 
the change, the malleability that you're now open to organically so that you're aware of how all of these different moving parts yield the outcome that at other times of the year it's not there, that you don't have to necessarily think about it in terms of eating more or eating less, but being mindful in your relationship with food because all of us are different in how we relate to it, how you relate to your sleep, how you relate to aspects of reflection, contemplation, spiritual exercise, and within that, too, the ability to see how those things culminate in deepening the desire, but also deepening the courage to execute on the ideas that so many of us have, but sometimes hesitate in moving forward on, because we don't see that many people around us doing the same thing and setting precedent in that way. You don't need somebody's permission to do the good that you only uniquely can do. And the world is not going to be able to benefit from the good that you don't do. And so when you wake up in the day and you go to bed at night, you build into your routine an opportunity for just reflection. What are the things that I want to achieve today? What are the things that I'm hoping to offer in? In a highly consumer-driven society, that teaches me to feed myself and feed myself and feed myself, how do I understand my choice in being a catalyst of real good and change by bringing consciousness into it? Because we're not the strongest of animals in creation. We can't swim to the depths of the ocean on our own accord or fly by ourselves into the highest levels of the skies. We're not the fastest or can jump the farthest. But we're the only animals that even after our stomachs are filled, we still continue to eat. And at times, we don't even care who has to have less in order for us to have more. You can now break away from this by just bringing the presence of your consciousness and then thinking out, how do I strategically continue on in a way that I don't have to give it up at the end of the month? But it's okay for me to say that I feel good by doing good for others. I'm going to be the person that recognizes that the person who wrote my name on a coffee cup, they also have a name. So I'm going to ask them what it is and how their day is going. The person who drives the bus, the Uber driver that picks me up, I'm going to recognize that they're a full individual. And how I see them doesn't tell me about who they are, but how I see them tells me a lot about myself. And I want to be able to find meaning benefit, beauty in everything that's around me. And so you just maintain it. As the days turn into weeks post-Ramadan, you start to think about it from now that says strategically, how will I retain and act upon what it is that I'm learning about myself, my own capacity and my own potential, and I allow for myself to keep giving into that growth mindset and even where I slip and might take a fall, that's okay, because sometimes I got to take a step backwards in order to get a different vantage point of what lies ahead. But it's on me to determine where and how I choose perspective. And you want to just do your best, but also recognize your potential for what being best means to you, and then live in that way where you're embracing your own capacity to be a reason as to why people have hope in this world and never the reason as to why somebody might dread it. 
Thanks so much for that guidance, Imam Khalid. I really appreciate you joining today and sharing your perspective and insights with our listeners. If you are interested in learning more about our Faith and Philanthropy Initiative, please reach out to your UBS financial advisor or our Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team. And please be sure to tune in to next week's podcast as we continue to feature external speakers and discuss topics exploring philanthropy and purpose from a Muslim perspective. Thank you. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific security Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements it is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.